This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hi, I'm Alan Katz. Welcome back to the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, the making of Bordello of Blood. This is episode eight, The Martini. In movie-making lingo, the martini is the last shot of the day. It was coined by a guy named Cody Whitehouse in 1989, the concept being that the next shot is out of a glass. When the dads from the Crypt team and I agreed to partner on this podcast, the caveat was that before the first season was done, the dads from the Crypt would get to ask the Tales from the Crypt team their questions. And here we are. To get this started, Jason Stein had a few questions for me in particular. When you and I started down this road together, Jason, neither of us had any idea it was going to end up here. I I think it started on Twitter, didn't it? Correct. So, okay, let me let me just say first off, thank you for allowing me and my my listeners to go on this journey with you. Um, Like like you're saying uh, this time last year. So we're recording on May 5th. Yep. This time last year, I was still figuring out how to do the Dads from the Crypt podcast, putting it together, meeting with Jody and Mondo, um, and testing things and trying out different things. And bouncing miles ideas. ahead of me. One of the things I always knew from the beginning is I wanted to try to get people from the show involved. And, you know, in this day and age and social media and everything, it's a lot easier to reach out to people um, and just to see. And I'm the kind of person where I, I have no problem sending out 20 responses and hearing 19 no's. And that one yes is like great, let's do it. Um, so that was just uh, that was just a kernel of salesman. That's yeah, that's a kernel of an idea I had back then, and I never would have thought this is where it end up. Um, having a whole extra show on top of the show um, with people that made one of the Tales of the Crypt movies um, and doing you know all this great. I mean, we've had amazing guests, actors, writers, directors, producers we have from we the show, have. and it's been a huge honor. Well, uh, you know, you, you do something that, that every time I tell people about, you know, the group that I'm involved with dads from the crypt and, and I say what you guys do, well, they review all the tales in the crypt uh, episodes and they give parenting advice that always gets the best laugh. Cause thanks. it's, it's, it's <laughs> who else does that? It's such a funny idea that, uh, yeah. When, when you told me what, what it was that you did, I thought it was so hilarious that how could I not do it? Right. Yeah. So through that process, you know, I was just kind of combing through and um, and you're obviously your name isn't on the first couple seasons, but, you know, I was kind of looking forward. I was kind of looking ahead and I'm always like trying to think a couple episodes ahead or, you know, a season ahead. Of who I, yeah. Who, who I can get involved and start getting getting my uh, my clutches into. And then, you know, you are one of the your twitter had your messages open so that that's how i originally reached out to you on twitter i invite the world to, uh, to take <laughs> a shot at me for better or for worse hey um and here we are you know we have this uh, working relationship together and we've now, created a you, whole new thing the, the first thing that we did you you interviewed me at first the first thing was an episode i and i've it wasn't an episode as much as just like kind of a background like okay right how right, did right, you right. get involved right. what and we talked that we did talk about individual episodes like yellow um that's right, that's right. yeah we, we we did ultimately and then you said you wanted to have a conversation about the the second tales feature film bordello of blood right so yeah part of the concept for the show was after every season we do one of the movies and then you know i would try to interview people so that at the end of the first uh, the first season when we wrapped up season one of tales in the crib we did demon night and we were able to get William Sadler as an interview, which is, you know, amazing. Yeah, so then, wonderful. It was wonderful. Yeah. So then we're kind of gearing up for the end of season two. And I wanted to do an episode and I did the, our interview, but that was more about the show. And I kept saying, we'll save the movie. We'll save the movie for when we go back and do that. And you were kind of like, well, actually, it's a much bigger tale to tell. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's more than just one one podcast worth of material and i i mentioned to you that as part of my therapeutic process my, my therapist had said you should write things down write things down and i started <laughs> writing things down and the next thing you know i was writing a book called how to live bull s bull s free 
a a practical guide to not killing yourself. Mm-hmm. And it, it I told my whole story and it was it was really helpful. And the chapter on Bordello of Blood ran 26 pages. I think and, we can uh, both agree that podcasting is cheaper than therapy, but takes up way more time. You know, and, and yet it, it is so effective as therapy. <laughs> and and when I had I, I sent you the the chapter on Bordello of Blood and, and your response was, I see. <laughs> yeah i was like okay this goes a lot this this is um i much I deeper think, than i was expecting i i i don't think you you necessarily envisioned what what was about to come uh, I, it, that's a perfectly valid place to begin because frankly i had no idea what was about to happen but mm-hmm. suddenly to to translate the story from that medium where I first put it down into the podcast medium was a very exciting proposition. And knowing that I had a a partner in crime who, my attitude is once I say, Hey, we're going to do this. I'm stuck. We're going to do this. And the last thing I'm going to do is let my partner down. It's Mm -hmm. just not how I play. And so having a partner for me is, is, is how you get things done. And so I was, I was grateful, well, to have, your, to have your ear, to have you as a sounding board, to have your presence. It, it was a great motivator that I had to get this done and, and it had to make, it had to please you. Right, as the audience surrogate. As, yeah, 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 as the audience, but... The, the strange thing was, the, the, the wholly unexpected thing was that the podcast, doing the podcast, telling the story via the podcast, the podcast became part of the story. Right. Somehow I, got, I, be, I went from an outsider to becoming part of the narrative in a very unintended way. As you are now. And, and in the same way that when I called Gil and I said, hey, you know, I'm doing this podcast i want to tell the story of you know how we made bordello blood now it screwed everything up and when he finally said okay and as as he points out in the podcast the thing that convinced him was i said you know there's a lot of a lot of really painful stuff happened and we'll talk about that but a lot of hilarious stuff happened and it's it's hilarious now because it's 25 30 years in the past at the time it was not hilarious but now yes it's it is funny and and suddenly all those years bring an awful lot of perspective not just to the making of bordello of blood but to our relationship and what happened to it as a result in in large part because of all the things that were breaking down while making that movie and because we made that movie yeah, there's an old uh, Jewish or Yiddish proverb that said, you know, life is a little bit of joy, a little bit of oy. Sometimes in equal parts. Uh, this was not an equal part. This, this was 99% <laughs> oy. So let's dive into this. The big question. Yeah. Now that everything is out, how do you feel? Fantastic. Yeah. It was a catharsis. Mm-hmm. One of the, for me, I knew this was going to be cathartic for me. Because, hey, I, I, I wrote 25 pages about this movie 25 years after the fact. I've been, and these were stories that I've been telling almost since the time. Because I knew as it was happening to me, I don't think I knew with the perspective I have now, but I was aware that something, I was changing direction and not necessarily in a way that I was going to be happy about. But sometimes life it's I, you find yourself heading in directions that you can't do anything to stop yourself from heading in. And that's, that's what was happening with Bordello of Blood. And look, we, we made a movie that none of us wanted to make for circumstances that as you look at them one at a time, yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And the next thing you know, it doesn't make sense. Madness. Do you feel at all exposed I spent 20 years, basically two decades dealing with a writer's block. Mm-hmm. And when I came out the other side of the writer's block, one of the things that 
I found me as a writer. I I'm I'm a I think I'm a far better writer today than I was 20 years ago. I'm older and, and, and wiser, but I think I've gained insight. I gained a great deal of perspective. I, I think coming within literal inches of, of killing myself and then bouncing back relatively quickly had a profound impact on my life. When I, when I say, and I, I say it in the podcast and I say it all the time, I feel like I was born again, not in a religious sense, but in a life sense. And right. one of the things that was born again was my passion for storytelling. In fact, I, I gained a passion for it that I, I never had the first time. It, it mattered to me this time. And so in telling any story and in, in telling my story, especially the most important element, if you're really going to tell the story, is honesty. Right. You must be willing to get absolutely bare-ass naked if you want to tell a true story. It's very hard to do. Among the, the, the notes I've gotten back since doing the podcast that have meant a tremendous amount to me, I've got one friend, Coleman, who commented upon the honesty, and he said, I don't think I can do that. Right. And no, that's, that's I, I don't know whether he, could or he, he couldn't. It was for me, it was essential to tell the story to, to get absolutely bare ass naked. Right. I mean, no, it takes an extreme amount of bravery to, like I said, expose yourself, put yourself out there like that. Uh, it helps um, that there's a happy ending. Yes. Without a happy I mean, ending, it would be a lot harder. But like, you know, when you, when you feel born again in a life sense, Really, I, I discovered, rediscovered my passion, not no, for storytelling, but for life, for my family, for everything. I, mm. God, I walk around in a perpetual state of bliss. And that's not the mood stabilizer. That just keeps the depression in a box. It's not, sure. it's not the, the copious amount of THC that, that, I, that I take in every day. And I take on a lot of THC. That really, it's mostly sativa. It helps me focus. It makes me feel good, but... Uh, I mean, those I'm, are all those are all tools. Yes, yes, yes. I'm 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 simply dealing with my own brain chemistry. At the end of the day, I'm keenly aware of the fact that we live in a crazy world. It's not crazy. It's uh, bonkers and getting more bonkers every second. Mm -hmm. This is nuts. And so, yeah, I have no delusions about, you know, I don't walk around deluded. I walk around keenly aware of of exactly what world I walk around in. But I walk around in it hopeful. Yeah. Um, and so that's that, that is one of the things that, that one of my takeaways from this whole experience, it has renewed every bit of hopefulness I felt. One of the things you said in your first episode, so this story was going to hurt to tell. Did it hurt as much as you thought it would? I'm not interested in judging anybody. One of the things I learned was that coming within inches of killing myself, I literally, it was on, on a completely full premise that that at some point the insurance money would, would make my family feel better. Well, that's nonsense. It's total bull. And so the thing that finally convinced me I, I could do this was absolute bullshit. And I literally had the revelation as I began to get better that I had come within inches of bullshitting myself to death. And that was a profound revelation. How impactful untruth can be in your life, to your life. Literally. So not only was I relieved that this massive piece of it was no longer, you know, in front of me, I suddenly became aware of all the, the little kinds of bull that were still in my life that I was using. And I made it my, my life's work of a kind to, to, to try to live as free of that in my own life as I possibly could. I have, it, it is so time consuming to deal with my own, my own bull I don't have time to deal with anybody else. Honestly, I mean, that's part of where the bliss comes from. I, I, I'm at peace with y'all. It's, I mean, it's no mistake that, you know, in the 12 steps, one of the, one of the steps is making amends to unload that baggage. So you can move on with your, well, you can help Highly others recommend. move on with their lives and Highly you recommend. can move on with your own. Approaching Gil, this was, this was an, this was a longstanding open wound. It wasn't just my creative partner. He was my best friend. And mm -hmm. You mean you can either let those those wounds fester or you can face them and you know 
He'll, I'm not one of those people who bonds very easily with a whole lot of people. It's going to surprise me. But it has to do with the reasons of, of, of why I was you know, depressed to begin with what happened to me when I was 14. I, I think right. that really, that made it very hard for me to bond with other people. You know, I walked around having this secret. And if you didn't know this terrible secret about me, you didn't know me. Probably distrusting. and Of course, because you look at everyone and you think, oh, you think you know me? You don't. And that's, that's a terrible way to walk around the world. And that's how I walked around the world. And, I, you know, I, I have lots of friends, but I, I never had, uh, I had few deep friends. And Gil Adler was one of the few people with whom I had a deep friendship. And, you know, when that, when that friendship ended, it was... So what was your reaction when you got your response from Gil? Were you, like, I was you sitting there, like, waiting by the phone, like, oh, is he gonna, what's he going to say? Uh, I sent him an email. Tell yourself those stories. I I sent him an email. I got an email back. We had a a quick phone call. I told him what I wanted to do. He said, okay. And then the the first time we started to talk was, it was and it wasn't surprising how quickly we settled back into a certain rhythm. And suddenly we were both storytelling. Once we began that, everything else kind of flowed. We both had a feeling like, God, if we could go back in time and and do this right, we might have could have could have gotten past this. And mm-hmm. you know, suddenly I told him things that he didn't know. He told me things that I didn't know about what happened and suddenly getting a more complete picture. God, well, that always helps, doesn't it? Knowing, <laughs> knowing the truth regardless, but suddenly my goal, I wasn't looking for an apology. I wasn't looking for uh, anything. I, I really, I had, whatever was going to happen was going to happen. My approach to it was the story is going to be the story. And if I'm going to be a character in it, I'm just going to be a character in it. I'll be the narrator and I'll be the character. And lo and behold, the the character, when he walked into the room with another character, something happened. And then of course, when I interviewed everyone else, that was really when a lot of the catharsis began, well, the rest of the catharsis, because I wasn't the only one seeking a catharsis. Everyone was. We were all part of something that we knew at the time was special. We did not realize how special. You kind of have to go through the rest of your career to realize, wow, that one stood out even after all that time. Tales from the Crypt was a strange thing because it was it was where TV and feature films bumped into each other at a time when, when, when those two worlds did not intersect back in the 90s. One either was feature or one either was TV. You didn't do both, both. And yet we did both. And we were the place where both worlds worked together. And that was one of the things that made Tales special. Our executive producers were, were the biggest feature guys on the planet. Really, it's a feature a week. Anthologies are, are unlike any other kind of, 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 of creative endeavor because you are reinventing the wheel every single week. Now, I want to I go back to the, your guest for a minute. Um, sure. Is there anyone that you really wish you could have gone on that you weren't able to get a hold of? Is there anyone who refused? You know... As I, the people that I was most interested in, in, in having, in, in interviewing and, and, and hearing their stories were the core group of people from Tales. Because part of the story that I wanted to, that I began to realize I needed to tell was the fact that why Bordello was such a, a shock to the system, not just for me, but for all of us was because it was so antithetical how we did Bordello was so antithetical to how we did Tales. Tales was a kind of uh, mind-bending challenge every single episode, but it was organic and, and it, was, it was creativity the way that you want it to be, you know, and, and, and I think we, we created a product for our audience that our audience still connects with. Thank goodness. <laughs> it, was, it was just that kind of, just that kind of show. And to discover that everyone else had the exact same feelings about it and wanted to talk about not just what a great experience it was to do it, but how how painful it was Mm -hmm. that we all got dragged into doing a movie that none of us wanted to make. And there was no, not like you could really fight your way out of it. Not really. And it really, it's the the wheels came off our lovely wagon and in a way it's inevitable. It's really, really hard to, to keep anything like that going. Some other productions, some other companies do. I mean, you never, it, movie making is one of those things where you never quite know. It's kind of like baking cake. You never quite know how it's going to come out in the end. I mean, you know, I'm sure when they made Star Wars, it was like, what the hell is this? What is going on? This is, this is junk. 
and then you put it all together and it's movie magic. That, it's a fine you know, line the, between the there's, two. There's a very famous story about uh, Ralph Rosenblum who edited uh, Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. And yeah. before Ralph Rosenblum sat down, it was an absolute mess. And Ralph Rosenblum, the editor, really fixed the movie, cut it in, into, you know, gave it shape and, and really suggested, all right, you're going to need a couple of things for, to, for transition. You need all, you, you do a couple stand-up routines and, and, and talking to the camera, boom. Now a little cut together. And then it goes and wins the Oscar. And not an ounce of that is by design. It is as shocking to the filmmakers frequently as it is to anybody. So when you reached out to people, was was there anyone that was like, no, I I can't, I just refuse? The one person who was a little reluctant was Colleen Neistat, our our Canadian production manager. She is now a Vancouver city councillor. And so she had a little something to lose, depending upon what the <laughs> angle, what, what the angle was here. Right. One of the things that I assured her, while the honesty of the story was very important to her, it, it couldn't be sleazy. It couldn't be just me or, or, or the other filmmakers attacking people. And, and I assured her that that was not my goal. I think I had done episodes one and two by then. So I sent them to her mm-hmm. so that she could hear contextually, what was the story I wanted to tell, how I wanted to tell it, what my tone of voice was going to be, and what my own performance sounded like, so that she got a sense of, she could tell her story within the context of how I wanted to tell the rest of the story. Yeah, that makes that's fair. Again, in the beginning of your uh, of the podcast, you referred to Bordello Blood as a soulless, heartless movie monster that should not be. My my take on it is that you know, with the momentum that Tales from the Crypt had from the show and then from the first movie, that you know, it was inevitable that another movie was be made. There was like no doubt, and it just became the momentum of Tales itself made it convenient to solve everyone else's issues because it was going to happen no matter what. So let me just, you know, piggyback things on it. So it became like a Christmas tree that everyone kept, you know, putting up their issues on until it just became so much, it just toppled over. When you make decisions for all the wrong reasons, nothing good is going to happen, (laughs) simply. It's just when they pulled the one movie, Dead Easy, and they stuck that other script in our hands, they set us up for failure. There was almost no way to succeed. Oh, maybe if we'd had six months to work on the script, we could have figured some things out and, and, and done something. But we had three weeks till formal prep began. And we had a cast in that time. We had production design and, and we had to do all the other movie making things while trying to figure out what to do with this script. Well, the irony is, is that you and Gil and the rest of the creative uh, team took the brunt of the punishment where the people who made those decisions, I'm sure didn't really lose much sleep over it. Not for two seconds, but that, that, that's the beast, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, people making decisions and, and, and the people living with the repercussions of those, those decisions living two very different lives. Right. Cause you're, I mean, as a creative team, you're obviously doing the best that you can with what you're given, but when you're, when you're put under those circumstances, it's, there's not much you can do, but then you're, you're as a creative team, you're left with, you know, holding the bag you you hope you trust that your your bosses are are pulling the wagon toward the same destination you are and it can be quite horrifying to discover that your bosses have set you in motion towards someplace you have no desire to go now what do we do and that was that was really the bordello of blood experience talking about bosses Obviously, the story is amazing that you're telling, but my, one of my favorite things I look forward to every time was the Joel Silver antics. It's just, you couldn't create a character in these no, stories. No, no, no. It, it's, that was funny. When I started down the road to, to telling the story, I thought the character that was going to bring the most fun in just, oh, you got to hear the story. You got to hear that story. I, I knew there were some good Joel stories, but I thought it was Sly Stallone. I, th- I thought my interaction, and, and I never, I never met the man, but I feel like, I feel like I'm so intimate with him. When everyone got talking about Joel, I kind of forgot how larger than life Joel really is and still is in everyone's head. It's, I ended episode five with, with, with a, a little, a little note about how I used to coach ultimate frisbee during the 20 years yeah. when i was experiencing my writer's block and i was raising my kids and 
how one day I, I needed to go look up a rule for ultimate Frisbee. It's great sport. It's like Frisbee and football and soccer somewhere. And it's self-officiating. There are no officials. And one day I had to look up a rule and I discovered to my, it's my infinite horror <laughs> that Joel Silver had invented ultimate Frisbee. And even here, I live in LA, but it, I felt like I was living a thousand miles away from Hollywood, from my previous life. It seriously felt forever away, the other end of, of, of the universe. And to suddenly bump into this fact that the thing you're doing, that you're coaching, this man has touched, this man invented. Like if I, if I was watching a movie and I said that was a scene in the movie that that was like the, the whole culmination, like the, or the, the coda of a movie, yeah, 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 I, would, yeah. I would call BS. I'd be like, no, that, that's some writer who's trying to be too cute. Who is, uh, um, you know, trying to impress us trying to go going a little too far. But so the fact that it's a real story, it's just, I can't get over that. You could not write a character like Joel. You could certainly try and they have tried. I mean, Joel is one of the most, his character has been used in countless feature films. Oh God, Kevin Spacey and Jump the Shark is Joel. Yeah. Uh, uh, God, uh, in, oh, oh. Yeah. Was it Tropic Thunder? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very famously. There, there are lots and lots of movies where everyone who knows anything knows, oh, man, that's Joel. You, did, you, you, you had your character. You said, do Joel. I, I just imagine that at some point, at some day, someone's going to put this podcast in Joel Silver's hands. <laughs> I'd be very curious. I, I, you know, one of the things about Joel is, is he's, I'll use the word sociopathic. Uh, I don't think he's bothered by the way the world looks at him. I think he takes Oscar Wilde's approach. It's better to be talked about than not talked about. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, and then, you know, I'm sure look at how big his house is. And then we can oh, see who's laughing. Oh, God, he he's, cannot be a Joel Silver unless you live larger than life. And if you live that, you know, larger than life, you've got to be willing to take an awful lot of crap from an awful lot of people. Strangely, for all the 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 convert, for all the the stories about arguments and 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 crazy behavior, you know, Gill's attitude toward Joel is is quite it's warm actually. In in spite of the craziness, there's there's respect and there's there's a certain degree of 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 love for the guy. Uh, it's funny. I I the guy fired me. In essence, I thought he did, but maybe he didn't. In retrospect, as I go back and I and I as I have reviewed my relationship with Joel, I recognize suddenly how not just that he was generous in in money and hey I, I did well enough, but it was he 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 handed me his personal copy of the Sandman graphic novel. He put that into my hands and said, "You should read this." I'm sure he handed that off to a couple copies off to a couple other writers because he was looking for hey come back with a great idea. But that's a rather generous thing to do. And I, I misunderstood, well, misunderstood. I didn't see it for what it was. I didn't. I wonder if I had responded to Joel in any way, shape or form. Hey, if I'd returned the phone call to Joel and Bob Zemeckis, when they called after firing me, uh, I wonder what that conversation would have been like. I, I carried a fair amount of resentment around in me for a very long time. And then I had my come to Jesus moment. This, this Jewish atheist had to come to Jesus, Jesus moment. Jesus was Jewish anyway. Uh, and I suddenly, I came, I, I was at peace with, with everything that happened. Mm -hmm. And I've suddenly found my peace with Joel and I understood the context. And this, the crazy thing about Joel is if you listen to everyone's stories, as crazy as the Joel stories is no one... Not many people. I, I, I don't think Colleen is terribly, I don't think Colleen likes Joel, but I wouldn't expect her to. Really, I, most of us who worked with Joel on an ongoing basis, we come out, we came out the other end, not hating him, I, rather I read, liking him perversely. Yeah. I read that resentment is drinking poison, expecting someone else to get sick. Uh, that's lovely. I like that. It's strange how, how we all came away hardly admiring Joel, that he brought us all into this, that he created, you know, he, he was rather instrumental in keeping that world going and in, in giving it the energy and the urgency and the madness, the creative madness that it had. And, and it did, it was absolutely touched by, by creative madness.
So at the end of the day, yeah, as crazy as Joel Silver is, the craziest thing is that none of the people in this story dislike him. I want to talk about Dead Easy, what could have been. People, you know, I get a lot of questions from this about, you know, tell us, tell us about Dead Easy, tell us about Dead Easy. So I'm going to ask you, tell us more about Dead Easy. We kind of know the, the basics, but I want to go a little deeper. The, the movie in my head that I thought, God, wouldn't it be cool if we could do something that had this kind of, uh, it was uh, Nick Rogue's Don't Look Now which is a great psychological thriller. And that was really in my head, what I was aspiring to. Cause it's, it's, it's very thematic light. The color red is very important. Water takes place in Venice mostly. And it, it's beautifully atmospheric. And uh, I, we were going to do this in new Orleans. And so what Gil and I really wanted to, to capture was a feeling of atmospheric dread. It really, what, what we aspired to with, with Dead Easy in the script and, and how we were thinking about, how we were thinking it should look was a, a taut psychological thriller that was going to be different from, from anything we'd ever done before. We really thought this is going to, people will, will not look at us as just horror guys because we did not want it to be just a horror movie we wanted it to be yeah a, a psychological thriller that could cross over not to be reductive but so what would have been so would have been like a kind of a ghost story what would have been kind of the it's about the a, a guy a guy in his 30s he's got a young kid i think his wife dies at the beginning of the movie and he suddenly discovers he's got this recovered memory of a and it has to do with a Harlequin character. He, he was adopted, but he discovers that he actually is from New Orleans and he, he discovers his, his birth story is, is, is tied to uh, his dad. His father was a, a, a really a rotten, rotten person, got involved with, with some, some, some voodoo people and ends up stuck in this netherworld between here and there. And the one way he can get out is to exchange himself his soul in essence with the the soul of his son now 25 uh, well I'm sorry, now in, sorry, in, in his 30s with the kid and so the, the 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 harlequin father kidnaps the grandchild the the son's son the grandchild and it's the our hero is trying to get his his son back from his father mm, okay. and there and again, it, it took place in the swamps north of New Orleans and in New Orleans, and it was very atmospheric and and just the slowly as this Harlequin shadow character began to to pierce reality is what we were really struggling with. How to how to now it'd be so easy with 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 digital effects. We we could what we were trying to what we were wrestling with was was hard and I I think we we would have struggled with that throughout the entire production how to how to realize that netherworld between here and there so it looked the way that we were talking about Ordello of course was nothing like it was there ever ever any discussion about continuing a demon knight storyline no uh the only thing that they wanted to do was to carry forward the key mm -hmm. in some fashion the whole mandate was three different movies. Okay, they wanted them to be different. Because it's an anthology, so three different movies, nothing to do with each other, except you know, little touches and little self-referential. Things like the key and things the Crypt Keeper might do or say. What's something positive that you could say about Bordello of Blood? I made a podcast about it that reunited <laughs> everyone and, uh, and, and put me back in touch with, with my dear friend Gil Adler. Now that that's over, and thank you for going easy on me, Jason, it's time to bring in the rest of the Tales from the Crypt team and Jason's partner in crime, Armando Aguilar, to continue the interrogation. Or, as the Crypt Keeper would have called it, the inscarigation. As the guy who wrote every single word the Crypt Keeper said while I was employed by Tales from the Crypt, nothing is scarier than the thought of having that guy's voice back in my head. But I digress. This episode belongs to the dads from the crypt. That's Jason and Mondo. And they're going to be interviewing us. They've got questions for us that okay. either the, the rest of the podcast didn't answer or it provoked. Okay. So 
Uh, I'm, guys, I'm going to hand it to you. And uh, at some point, Victoria is going to have to go because she's this yeah. is her last night in Mexico. And uh, there's a party outside the door that, that that's, that's trying to <laughs> do it. And, she didn't, and, and also, she talking. didn't invite she didn't invite any one of us to that party, by the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a sc screw her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hug her off, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, again, well, I'll be thinking of you guys when I'm out there and I'll cheers you again. <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Stein. Uh, along with Mondo, we are uh, two of the three dads from the crypt. Uh, we grew up on Tales from the Crypts. Um, so this is I'm overjoyed to be able to interact with each of you yeah. and all the contributions you've made. And again, thank you for diving back into the Bordello pool. Um, Which, <laughs> yeah. Swamp. It's ironically, it's a swamp. swamp that was go. the other movie. <laughs> so again, thank you for uh, agreeing to do all this. This is amazing. Um, so the first question, what went through each of your heads when you got a message from Alan to talk about Bordello blood of all things? This is Ed. I'll, I'll go first. Um, I was actually wasn't surprised because about a year and a half ago, like right before I think it was like a month before the pandemic started two years ago, we had a, uh, a Demon Knight reunion screening. And we talked a little about Bordello of Blood at that night. And so when this came up, it wasn't really a huge surprise. Just because of time and what a cult following kind of developed. But second to that, my feeling was, really? Bordello? Okay. <laughs> Wardrobe Supervisor Randall Thropp. I just remember being really disappointed because the script for Dead Easy was really good and we were looking forward to, oh, you know, going to New Orleans and that would have been fun. And then it's like, what's this bordello of blood? You gotta be kidding me. Victoria Burroughs. Yeah, it was a little shocking to us. We were so gung-ho. I actually took one of the pieces of art from Dead Easy that was uh, done um, from that. Um, but the, the good part of it was is that Gil was going to direct, so at least it was staying in in family, so to speak. But right. it was like none of us saw that. I I didn't see it coming. It was kind of yeah. Random. It was it was it was head spinning because yeah. I was I was yeah. down in New Orleans when Gil and Alan said get back to L.A. and I had no idea what was going on. I thought the whole thing had just shut down. Yeah. And then got back and then there was like a whole new idea and we're heading north. And I was just like, okay, I'm just trying to catch up to myself right now. Yeah. And our lists, it was like everything we'd done. It's like, are you kidding me? Now we've got to toss those aside and, and start anew. Gil Adler. My reaction. First of all, hi, Greg. Great to see you. You um, too, Gil. My, rea my reaction to Alan when he first asked me was, haven't we suffered enough? Do we really <laughs> want to go back? And we live that experience? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> you, we have not suffered enough. <laughs> and Alan said, I think it would be good therapy for us. <laughs> right. Yeah. As I told Alan, this is uh, cheaper than therapy, but or it's not yeah. it's, it's, it's not as cheap as uh, uh, therapy is much more expensive than podcasting. <laughs> That's true. And now that we've been through kind of rehashing everything, recontextualizing the experience and kind of getting back together. How does it feel to now reconnect with the crew and kind of, you know, re rehash everything and get more context? What's, uh, what's so gratifying about this and isn't painful at all is how quickly the conversation started that we, it's like we left off 10 minutes ago. It's like we some you know some of us haven't seen each other for years, yeah. Because we've all been busy doing our own careers, and yet, as soon as we got in contact with each other, it was so exciting for me because it was like we hadn't spoken in ten minutes, and we just picked it up. I yeah, I want to second what Gilda said. Exactly the same thing. I mean, it was it was amazing to me how quickly everybody just kind of fell into their uh, old patterns of communication, and uh, you know, a lot of our our conversations were limited because of time but they could have easily gone two, three, four, five hours. I mean, at least, yeah, that's the way I felt. And I think everybody else felt that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We, we all liked each other. We liked yeah. Yeah. together. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was a great creative unit. And it's, it's such a, it's such a strange thing to have a collective, creative, collaborative experience together. Yeah. You, we, we almost take it for granted, but really some are so, special you 
you know when you're in it, but you don't realize how special it is until you've had a whole career. Yeah. And you can see yeah. where the special things still shine brightly. So true. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so great to see everybody. I just, it was just precious for us to be able to pop into all the departments that we needed to and see yeah. each other in the halls at the food table. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> we, did. Like we, we all liked each other. We all yeah. did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We got good laughs. Uh, what's something positive you can say about uh, the experience of making Bordello of Blood or the movie itself? Oh, it ended. Past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it ended. <laughs> it was over with. Ed Tapia. For me, for me, the positive was getting to know and work in Vancouver and mm. getting to know a different part of the country that uh, a different part of the world that I hadn't spent any time in. Special effects master, Todd Masters. Say, also not getting busted for smuggling weed. I mean, that's got to be a positive. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> For me, I was glad when uh, when a cast member was, uh, you know, piece of casting was done that everybody agreed to it because there were really diverse opinions. And that was, there was a lot of mm, going on in uh, making decisions. Can you share who that was? Mm. You don't have to. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah we, we had a boss that was really particular. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Todd, this one's for you. Do you have a favorite effects gag from the movie? Uh, from Bordello? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, They're all bastard sorry. stepchildren. Yeah, pretty much. Um, well, I mean, yeah, it, it, there was a lot of patch up on that show. Um, you know, there, there's some stuff that John Van Vliet and I did uh, where we were mixing um you know some practical stuff with some digital stuff which was sort of new at the time uh you know the exploding uh bordello babes uh oh. is, you know kind of what i'm thinking of oh. actually uh i, I think tracy <laughs> lords actually makes a cameo in that sequence by the way really oh. uh, I, I think it's her head that flies in the punch bowl Oh my I God. could be wrong. I might right. be remembering this wrong, but since we were talking about Tracy, I, I, I will go back and look, but I seem to recall uh, we needed a, a quick little shot of somebody's head and we had her head. <laughs> okay. So, I, I, I might have to go, go watch go it tonight. And, yeah, we might have to go look at that. So I guess we can say that one. Um, yeah, the one and that's... The one in that sequence I really like is there's like just like a pair of legs and a little bit of a torso that's just kind of running around in circles, <laughs> kind of like yeah. an Evil Dead gag. That, yeah, that's one of Van Vliet's uh, removal gags. You know, he and I were having a whole lot of fun. One, one of the things that he and I did to kind of orchestrate that, because we we had pieces from Vancouver, but they were they, there was a whole bunch of footage of not a lot of good stuff, and so mm -hmm. we had presented Gil and alan um do you, i don't know if you guys remember this but we shot a very crude animatic of uh, kind of cartoon versions of bordello ladies exploding and things like that and we presented it to you to cut into the movie i don't know if you ever did or not but we used this animated sequence uh, to kind of guide how we were going to blow up this you know all the new ladies because it was all new footage they were shooting and one of them was the uh, blown apart lady walking around uh, right for the- <laughs> I think the blown up lady sort of summarizes the feeling I was experienced when we finished the movie. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the whole movie is a metaphor. <laughs> well, one thing that hasn't been touched on, uh, so I know on the show that is usually Kevin Yeager who directed the uh, Rapparats. Mm. For the movies, uh, Gil, did you direct um, the Rapparound bits in that? Yeah. So how did William Sadler get involved as a, and who convinced him to, to be a mummy? Bill had done it once before. And we, we kind of, we had this ongoing relationship with, with Bill. Bill had done one of the original episodes of Tales from the Crypt, of course, you know, the Walter Hills. Uh, and he's fantastic. God, mm. Bill Sadler is so good in that episode. Um, when Gil and I went aboard, excuse me tales um they were they had done three episodes of two-fisted tales and they needed a wraparound and so we came up with this 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 crazy character in a wheelchair who who whatever 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 wound you suffered his was a thousand times worse and 
Bill Sadler played it and uh, Bob, Bob Z directed the wraparounds um, and Bill was great. And so when we, at one point there was a, a, one of the episodes of Tales came up rather short and we needed to do a longer uh, Crypt Keeper segment. And so okay. we- oh, I think I, that was uh, Assassins. Right, 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 Assassins. And so uh, we, we needed a longer Crypt Keeper segment. And so, all right, we decided to do the Crypt Keeper working with another character. And so it was, I forgot what was it, it was, uh, uh, was it the Grim Reaper, I think. Yeah, it was a death from Bill and Ted. Yeah, it was, it was, it was yeah, the, the Grim Reaper. So, you know, we had uh, the Crypt Keeper having lunch with the Grim Reaper. And, and the, you know, the idea was the Grim, the Grim, the, uh, the Crypt Keeper sitting there thinking, oh my God, this guy is so boring. Well, Bill, of course, you know, was the, the only person we could think of to call and do that. So he did that. And when we decided to do it for Bordello, uh, there was no one else to call but Bill. And so the answer to the question, why Bill? It, it was not a, it, there was no choice. It, it had to be Bill. And Bill, Bill was all in and Bill was all in. He loved it. I mean, he oh, had a great yeah. time with it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh gosh, yes, he, yeah. Oh. He, he was definitely part of the family. I mean, oh, yeah, for sure, sure. Yeah. He was everywhere. I mean, he, yeah, he used yeah. to come by our, our monster shop with his scout group because oh. he was a scout leader. And uh, oh my God. They, and so he would bring all these kids by our monster shop and we'd be molding their hands and showing them how to make blood. And I don't, I don't know if there's a badge for that, but they would have gotten it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we even got, I have a plaque somewhere from the, the scouts saying, oh, thank you, Mr. Masters. And Aww. he actually came to one of our, you guys remember our Halloween party? Oh, right? yes. I, I remember that party. I was Wonderful. There. Yeah. And that's, well, you, that same year, Todd, the same year of your Halloween party, he came to my Christmas party. <laughs> was he yeah. dressed as Santa? Because at, uh, at the Halloween party, he came as the Grim Reaper. And it was yeah. amazing. Oh. It was like, yeah. whoa, this guy just stepped off the cinema like a you know a movie. Here. But yeah, Bill Bill was part of the family. He was. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Was, this is the the Tales from the Crypt team is is the Bill Sadler fan club. Awesome, um, Gil. This question's for you. Uh, have you had any desire to do any directing, at least feature directing? since then or if you could what would you have wanted to direct um you know i i haven't really uh i did do some television mm -hmm. you and know, i did a bunch charmed, of uh, yeah. uh charmed and i did a bunch of uh well i was i was signed to do a bunch of but they didn't succeed the uh, fantasy island uh that that barry josephson produced in the, in the late 90s and i went to hawaii and, and shot an episode there and then from that i got they decided they wanted me to shoot every other one and I and so they called my agent to make that deal. And in the meantime, I was I was doing Charmed, and then they I got a call one I got a call the first night from Bill from my wife says there's a man named uh, Duke on the phone for you. I go Duke, I don't know anybody named Duke. She goes yeah, there's a guy named Duke. You got to talk to him. So I get on the phone and this guy Duke is on the phone and he says uh, what do you do to the girls today? I go what. What do you do to my girls on Charm? I go, who is this? He goes, this is Duke Vincent. I'm Aaron Spelling's partner. And I just got a call from each one of them independently asking that you come back and shoot every other one. And they haven't liked anybody. So what the hell did you do to them? So I, I, first I thought it was an accusation of what did I do there? <laughs> so, so we were going to do every other one. And then Joel Silver found out about it and called me up and yelled at me and screamed at me. And he said, I'm green lighting the next picture. And I go, Joel, you can't green light the next picture. It's Warner Brothers. I'm Warner Brothers. I'm green lighting the next picture. And I, I said, no, no, you're not. I mean, I'm not doing it. I'm going to keep doing this, but I'll do the next picture when, it, when, when we're ready. I'm just going to keep, you know, it's a way to make some money and, and I'm learning about making movies. So and I enjoy it. Um, and he said, okay, okay, how much do you want? And I said, what? I don't want anything. He goes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to send you a check for $25,000 tonight. I go, Joel, don't. This is not about money. I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm telling you, I'll be there for the next picture. And we got into this big fight and I hung up. And about two hours later, the, the doorbell rings and a messenger is there from Warner Brothers with an envelope. And I open it up and it was a check, not from Joel, but from Warner Brothers for $50,000 against my next producing thing. And it was, it was so bizarre. And then you know, and, and, and in those days, he was very close with the management at CAA. 
And so he basically told them I wasn't available any longer. And I sort of stopped directing television, but it, it felt like I was going in that direction for a while. One of the things that was important to us was also to give the, our fans uh, some input, a little, a little keyhole into all this. So we asked them to send us questions to ask everyone here. Uh, so Mondo, why don't you take away some of those? Okay. Uh, first of all, from Reddit, we have a question that is, Sorry, from Instagram. Uh, I'm not. It's my first time doing this interview stuff. Uh, who would you have cast instead of Dennis Miller? Who was on your wish list to play that role? Uh, aside from uh, obviously anybody, but yeah, anybody was going to be my answer. Yes, <laughs> we had someone in, in mind. We we had Danny Baldwin. We we had yeah, we, we read did. Danny and and we, actually we read him and we felt him. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, if you ask me who who I really would have rather worked with, I would have rather worked on Dead Easy and hired the actor to make, make Dead Easy. Yeah, that would have been much better. <laughs> Do you, did you have any fun interactions with Corey Feldman? And at the time, was he already working on his music? I I probably spent the most time with with Corey on that film, and um, I, I he I can't speak for anybody else, but he was a total delight. He was a total pro. He was yeah. already working on his music. He was, um, he showed up on time. He knew his lines. He said, please and thank you to the, the lowest PA to the top producer. Uh, he was great. I mean, he was, he was really fabulous. Yeah. And you know, yeah. there's, there's, there's some stories that maybe not for this podcast. <laughs> I, I sat with Corey one night after we wrapped and he played some music for me. He wanted to, you know, if, if there was any way to get one of his tracks into the soundtrack, he, he, whatever I could do to help. And I said, Hey, look, this is way outside my, any of my responsibilities, but I will certainly do what I can. Uh, I don't think that came In fact, I know that it came to nothing. Um, but yeah, he was, he was passionate about his music. It was, it was really, really important to him. We right. spent a lot of time actually before we even started the movie, I spent some time with him where we just got together and, and chatted a little bit and really talked about, what he had been going through with the drugs and what he'd been going through with the liquor. And, you know, it was sort of like a, a therapy session for both of us. And it made us a lot closer. So when we actually got to shooting, you know, it was really, I found it very easy working with him and dealing with him and really enjoyed it a great deal. Yeah. How did the Whoopi Goldberg cameo come about and how was she on set? We asked her. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we, where did the we, idea we, to have Whoopi Goldberg pop up out of a hospital bed? You know, she had done uh, the Toby Hooper episode with us, and we became somewhat friendly with her. And actually, a fan of, of, of the comic strip, of, of, of the comic books and, and the show. So, you know, we were preaching to the choir. Yeah. And when, and, and when she heard that we were making this movie and that I was directing it, um, she actually called us and said, um, I'm giving you one day. I want to, I want to be, I want to be part of it. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And, no, I'm going to give you one day. And I remember, I remember, I think I got off the phone. I don't know if you were on the phone with me, Alan or not, but I remember when we, if we got off the phone together, looking at you going, we're going to have to write something. for her. Now, we, now what do we do? No. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so we wrote a part for her. Yeah, we did. And, and, and Whoopi said, I'm not charging you anything. This is a freebie. I just want to be part of this. And then we started getting these phone calls from her management saying, well, you know, she's not going to work a whole day. And we said, oh, okay, whatever, whatever, you know. And then they, they kept pulling back and saying, well, you can't shoot her in eight, in eight hours, even though we had, we were usually, we're working 13 or 12 plus at lunch. And they, and they kept pulling back. And so when we finally did shoot her, we orchestrated it so that whatever we were shooting, as soon as she was ready for makeup and out of wardrobe, makeup and hair, we were going to shoot her out and stop everything and move to that set. It was all lit. And so that's what we did. And so we shot her out like in two and a half hours. And then she went and she changed. And afterwards she came over to us and said, you know, I'm really surprised at you guys. I was, I, I was gonna be here all day. I wanted to work with you guys all day. And you just shot me out like in two and a half hours. And we had to tell her, well, your management has been calling us saying, you know, the 12 hours went to eight hours, went to six hours, went to four hours. And we were afraid you were gonna, we were, you know, we were gonna lose you. And she was appalled at that. She said, "Oh my God, I can't believe that." And our last question from Instagram is, "Why were the Crypt Keeper segments so similar to the ones in the episode Assassins?" It worked so well in Assassins. 
So. <laughs> Makes sense. All right, then we have a few uh, few questions from our, uh, our Reddit listeners. And uh, were there any interesting scenes that you guys had to leave on the cutting room floor? I don't think we left anything on the cutting room floor. <laughs> we, we, were, we were, I think, lucky to be able to piece it all together and make and make some kind of sense out of it and have it the right land. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we looked for pieces on the cuttering floor from other movies to add to ours. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were hoping there was some scenes we could add. And we 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 did not get lucky, alas. And then uh was the tone purposely meant to be campy? And was the studio concerned that the nudity might alienate a segment of the audience? Uh, it, the, the campiness was definitely intentional. Um no, the studio, I don't think the studio knew or cared about us making the movie, to tell you the truth. I think they just wanted to be, be, be in business with Bob Z. Yeah, we were an obligation. And then uh, would an eighth season of Tales from the Crypt have happened if not for uh, Bordello's poor box office failure? Uh, Bob uh, Bordello's failure confined with a not great reception. It got severely hurt the Tales from the Crypt name. So if not for that, will we have maybe gotten an eighth? I don't think that a lot of people actually conflate the two. I I think in most people's brains, it's really separate because people still come to me about Tales from the Crypt. And a lot of them don't know that Demon Knight and Bordello's Blood were Tales from the Crypt features. Mm -hmm. And I think it had more to do with just it's running its natural course at HBO. And, and, and the partners kind of being tired of being, you know, ready for bigger and better things and really not caring that much at, at that point. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally by the agree. End of, yeah, but by the end of the season in, in England, I think we had pretty much run out of gas. And last but not least, um, what was the plan for the original slate of films, Dead Easy and Body Count? Were they still intending on using the element of the uh, the demon key being an instrumental piece to connect the films? Because uh, the key was in Bordello, uh, but it just was obviously used differently. I don't know why the key is in Bordello, but then again, <laughs> I don't know why we made Bordello. Well, I do, but I don't, but I do, but I don't. I wish I could tell you that the universe makes sense, but it does not. I've got one last question. It's We're going to get a little meta for a moment, so bear with me. Imagine, if you will, a Tales of the Crypt episode where a wonderful group of people made a not very good, ill-advised spin-off movie to a hit TV show. 26 years later, some schlub from Los Angeles starts a tribute podcast to reunite the original creators of the movie. Now, this being a Tales of the Crypt episode, there has to be a twist. In this case, the creators discover that it was the executive producer from the show, we'll call him Schmoll Schmilver behind the podcast all along. <laughs> now, in this episode of Tales of the Crypt, who would you cast to play yourselves and how would they eventually be killed off? So if you could cast yourself as any actor from any time period, who would you cast as yourself and how would you want them to be killed off? Bordello's director, Gil Adler. Well, if I were to cast myself, I, I think there's only one There's only one that I could think of and that would be the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> and, and while I'm on the subject, while I'm on the subject, let me clear something up that I've I've been asked so many times, and it's so ridiculous to me, and yet people keep asking me. I've asked the question, what, what was the actor's name who played the Crypt Keeper? I swear I get this question all the time. And I go, there was no actor, and they go, no, 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 we know it was a secret. Tell us the name of the actor, and I will. No, he was a puppet run by six puppeteers and people say to me yeah yeah we know that's what you've said but we know it's an actor and i go have you ever seen anyone that small (laughs) it's not a baby there's no actor it's a puppet wardrobe supervisor randall throp and i can tell you guys that he was a boy's size 10 but he had a men's size 8 hat so <laughs> everything that was made for the Crypt Keeper was really, a lot of it was bought for a boys department, then cut down and, and oh my gosh, but yeah, the hat was a size eight, which is a big head. Really, that was a Joel Silver's hat, and that's why. <laughs> I'm going to go to IMDb right after this. I'm going to IMDb right after this and put in that the Crypt Keeper wears a size eight boy shoe. <laughs> hat. Hat. Uh, yeah. the, here's a little bit, just a, tri- a trivia tidbit. The Crypt Keeper puppeteers probably made more money as actors than any other actor ever on the show. 
because they were 93 oh, wow. episodes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Probably yeah. true. Good trivia. Hey, yeah. But were they paid scale plus 10? Yep. <laughs> Jack scale plus 10 puppeteer rate. Yep. For 93 episodes and residuals. Uh -huh. The key there is puppeteer rates. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Really. So, Alan, who would you cast to play yourself in this uh, episode? You no, know, I'd cast Joey Pants. <laughs> yes, yes. That would be actor Joey Pantoliano, two-time Tales from the Crypt alumni, who I also worked with on The Outer Limits. When I got Outer Limits, I had been unemployed for quite a while, and I had let my hair go. It was not pretty. It was down to my ass. I, I had said I would cut my hair when I finally got a gig, and I finally got a gig, and I just never got around to it. So, all right, first day on the set, uh, working with Joey Pants, and uh, Joey says, your hair is, you got to cut your hair, it's off. Now, the one thing I knew about Joey is that before he, he was an actor, he was a hairstylist in Jersey. And so I said, Joey, if, if you want to cut it, you can cut it. Otherwise, I don't have time. He said, all right, I'm going to cut it. I have Polaroids of, of me in the, in the hair and makeup, and Joey Pants has given me a trim. Wow. And so I, I felt very close to Joey that day, you know, as one does with someone who does your hair. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and Alan, so, how would you uh, want your character to be dispatched? Sarcasm to death, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Victoria, you're the, you're the master caster here. Uh, okay, who would well, you want to play yourself? Uma Thurman. Ooh. And I want to die like, kill, like the karate fight in Kill Bill. Nice. Yes. Good. Going out in style, sliced up. <laughs> All right, Randall. Oh, uh, John Mulaney. Oh, nice. John Mulaney would be funny. How would he die? Uh, oh, gosh. Choking on something. Like, it's like, <laughs> oh, like no. choking, you know? Oh, God. Love it. Todd. Uh, wait a minute. So the question is, who's going to play me in a Tales from the Crypt? Who would you cast as you? Who would you cast as you? you? And then uh, how would you die? <laughs> uh, okay, how about Orson Welles with a different nose, of course. <laughs> um, and I think I'd be chased off a cliff by topless roller skaters. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we use them in Demon Knight? <laughs> we should have, but uh, somebody else used it. I think there was a trampoline involved too. There was. I, I think Monty Python did that in, in the Meaning of Life. There's something where, where a bunch of women are with toddlers are chasing the guy off a cliff. Right. Well, if Orson Welles isn't available, I'll take Dick Miller. Oh. All right. All right, Greg. Uh, I don't. Pro you know, probably. Um, you know, William Holden uh, face down in the pool with two oh. in the back. <laughs> Super choice. Yes, yeah. super choice. But yeah. you're still able to do a voiceover. I don't get it, and, and still can do the narration, right? Yeah. <laughs> the magic of movies. Yeah, yeah. Don't you know? They got smaller, but uh, obviously, you know, we did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all still small. Yeah. All right, Ed. Um, this is actually all tales from the crypt connected because um, remember Sherry Rose? Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. One day on, I, uh, uh, I remember whether it was her tales or her perversions episode, because I think she did both. Um, she told me that I looked like um, a younger version of John Lovitz. So it would be John Lovitz. Okay. And I would be killed the way the Crypt Keeper killed me in an episode. Knife in the back in the Crypt Keeper's uh, den. Because Gil and Alan um, needed a body and I was the body and the Crypt Keeper <laughs> killed me. <laughs> right. Good fun. I remember that, yes. Yeah. Yeah, actually, we uh, were covering one of Sherry Rose's episodes this weekend, so I tweeted about it, and she uh, retweeted us. I was, I was very happy and excited. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, she was lovely. I, I yeah. like Sherry. Yeah. Rose. It was great. Which, yeah, which episode? Um, on the Dead Man's Chest. Oh, mm -hmm. well, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the Billy Friedkin Billy's episode. episode. Yeah. We, yeah, we found a great uh, Polaroid of her and Tia just kind of hanging out. Gil, you didn't tell us how, you would, uh, how you'd meet your maker as the Crypt Keeper. And how well, he would cast himself. Well, well, as the Crypt Keeper, I never die. <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh -huh. Crypt Keeper. Either that, either that or I'm already dead. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Well done. 
I told everyone as the interview ended that I have a feeling this podcast is going to haunt us all like Bordello did, but in a much nicer way. In fact, I can guarantee this podcast is going to haunt everyone in season two coming soon. In the How Not to Make a Movie podcast second season, War Stories from the Movie Making Trenches, Gil Adler and I and the Tales from the Crypt team will talk to all the filmmakers we've ever worked with. And that covers pretty much everyone. You enjoyed season one, season two will blow your mind. It'll make you laugh, too. We've only scratched the surface of the Joel Silver stories for starters. So subscribe. Keep in touch. There'll be plenty of bonus content along the way. And please, join us for Season 2. See you then. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content.